Thank you for listening to The Sleepy Bookshelf tonight. You make this show possible. If you'd like to support us, then check out our premium feed, where you'll get ad-free access to the entire catalogue, plus exclusive episodes in between our longer books. There's a link to learn more in the show notes. Good evening, and welcome to The Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. As usual, I'm Elizabeth, your host, and it's so lovely to be here with you. Tonight, we'll be continuing with The Hound of the Baskervilles, but before that, let's take some time to settle in. Release any tension you might be holding in your muscles with a big stretch. Focus on how your body feels and allow yourself to physically relax. Next, let's take a deep breath in. Hold it for a moment and exhale, breathing out all your worries and concerns. Once more, inhale, Hold it a moment and exhale. Last time we were together, Watson was walking back from the postmaster's office to Baskerville Hall, musing about Barrymore and speculating whether he could have been the man dogging Sir Henry and Mortimer in London and what his motive might be he was suddenly approached by a youngish man who introduced himself as Stapleton, a friend of the late Sir Charles and a botanist and zoologist. Stapleton invited Watson to his home to introduce him to his sister. On the way, they heard a terrible moan that Stapleton could not account for that chilled Watson to his core. While Stapleton was otherwise engaged with a rare insect close to his home, his very beautiful sister appeared and immediately warned Watson to get away from the moors. When her brother returned, she left off the subject, but apprehended Watson again on his way home to apologize for the confusion. She had thought he was Sir Henry, not merely a visitor. Watson relayed all the comings and goings to Holmes in a letter. He also explained that over the following weeks, Sir Henry and Miss Stapleton appeared to be beginning a romance to the great disapprobation of her brother for reasons he knew not. He also spoke of Stapleton taking Watson and Sir Henry to the very site of the initial legend of Hugo Baskerville's tragic death some miles away. And so, we pick back up tonight. Watson, in the middle of his letter to Holmes, explaining that chaperoning Sir Henry may become more difficult 
should his relationship with Miss Stapleton continue to develop. So, just relax and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of The Hound of the Baskervilles. Chapter 8 First report of Dr. Watson to Mr. Sherlock Holmes in a letter continued. The other day, Thursday to be more exact, Dr. Mortimer lunched with us. He has been excavating a barrow at Longdown. Never was there such a single-minded enthusiast as he. The Stapletons came in afterwards, and the good doctor took us all to Yew Alley at Sir Henry's request to show us exactly how everything occurred upon that fatal night. It is a long, dismal walk, the Yew Alley, between two high walls of clipped hedge with a narrow band of grass upon either side. At the far end is an old tumble-down summer house. Halfway down is the moor gate, where the old gentleman left his cigar ash. It is a white wooden gate with a latch. Beyond it lies the wide moor. I remembered your theory of the affair and tried to picture all that had occurred. As the old man stood there, he saw something coming across the moor, something which terrified him so that he lost his wits and ran and ran until he died of sheer horror and exhaustion. There was the long, gloomy tunnel down which he fled. And from what? A sheepdog of the moor? Or a spectral hound, black? silent and monstrous. Was there a human agency in the matter? Did the pale, watchful Barrymore know more than he cared to say? It was all dim and vague, but always there is the shadow of crime behind it. One other neighbor I have met since I wrote last. This is Mr. Frankland of Laughter Hall, who lives some four miles to the south of us. He is an elderly man, red-faced, white-haired and choleric. His passion is for the British law and he has spent a large fortune in litigation. He fights for the mere pleasure of fighting and is equally ready to take up either side of a question so that it is no wonder that he has found it a costly amusement. Sometimes he will shut up a right of way and defy the parish to make him open it. At others, he will, with his own hands, tear down some other man's gate and declare that a path has existed there from time immemorial, defying the owner to prosecute him for trespass. He is learned in old manorial and communal rights, and he applies his knowledge sometimes in favor of the villagers of Fenworthy, 
written sometimes against them, so that he is periodically either carried in triumph down the village street or else burned in effigy, according to his latest exploit. He is said to have about seven lawsuits upon his hands at present, which will probably swallow up the remainder of his fortune and so draw his sting and leave him harmless for the future. Apart from the law, he seems a kindly, good-natured person, and I only mention him because you are particular that I should send some description of the people who surround us. He is curiously employed at present, for being an amateur astronomer, he has an excellent telescope with which he lies upon the roof of his house and sweeps the moor all day in the hope of catching a glimpse of the escaped convict. If he would confine his energies to this, all would be well, but there are rumours that he intends to prosecute Dr. Mortimer for opening a grave without the consent of the next of kin, because he dug up the Neolithic skull in the barrow on Longdown. He helps to keep our lives from being monotonous and gives a little comic relief where it is badly needed. And now, having brought you up to date in the escaped convict, the Stapletons, Dr. Mortimer and Franklin of Laughter Hall, let me end on that which is most important and tell you more about the Barrymores and especially about the surprising development of last night. First of all, let me tell you about the test telegram which you sent from London in order to make sure that Barrymore was really here. I have already explained that the testimony of the postmaster shows that the test was worthless and that we have no proof one way or the other. I told Sir Henry how the matter stood, and he at once, in his downright fashion, had Barrymore up and asked him whether he had received the telegram himself. Barrymore said that he had. Did the boy deliver it into your own hands? asked Sir Henry. Barrymore looked surprised and considered for a little time. No, said he. I was in the box room at the time, and my wife brought it up to me. Did you answer it yourself? asked the baronet. No, Barrymore replied. I told my wife what to answer, and she went down to write it. In the evening, he recurred to the subject of his own accord. I could not quite understand the object of your questions this morning, Sir Henry, he said. I trust that they do not mean I have done anything to forfeit your confidence. Sir Henry had to assure him that this was not so and pacify him by giving him a considerable part of his old wardrobe, the London outfit having now all arrived. Mrs. Barrymore is of interest to me. She's a heavy, solid person, very limited, intensely respectable, 
and inclined to be puritanical. You could hardly conceive a less emotional subject. Yet I have told you how, on the first night here, I heard her sobbing bitterly, and since then I have more than once observed traces of tears upon her face. Some deep sorrow gnaws ever at her heart. Sometimes I wonder if she has a guilty memory which haunts her. I have always felt that there was something singular and questionable in Barrymore's character, but the adventure of last night brings all my suspicions to a head. And yet, it may seem a small matter in itself. You are aware that I am not a very sound sleeper, and since I have been on guard in this house, my slumbers have been lighter than ever. Last night, about two in the morning, I was aroused by a stealthy step passing my room. I rose, opened my door, and peeped out. A long black shadow was trailing down the corridor. It was thrown by a man who walked softly down the passage with a candle held in his hand. He was in shirt and trousers, with no covering to his feet. I could merely see the outline, but his height told me that it was Barrymore. He walked very slowly and circumspectly, and there was something indescribably guilty and furtive in his whole appearance. I have told you that the corridor is broken by the balcony, which runs round the hall, but that it is resumed upon the farther side. I waited until he had passed out of sight, and then I followed him. When I came round the balcony, he had reached the end of the farther corridor, and I could see from the glimmer of light through an open door that he had entered one of the rooms. Now all these rooms are unfurnished and unoccupied, so that his expedition became more mysterious than ever. The light shone steadily, as if he were standing motionless. I crept down the passage as noiselessly as I could and peeped round the corner of the door. Barrymore was crouching at the window, with the candle held against the glass. His profile was half turned towards me, and his face seemed to be rigid with expectation as he stared out into the blackness of the moor. For some minutes he stood, watching intently. Then he gave a deep groan, and with an impatient gesture he put out the light, I made my way back to my room, and very shortly came the stealthy steps, passing once more upon their return journey. Long afterwards, when I had fallen into a light sleep, I heard a key turn somewhere in a lock, but I could not tell whence the sound came. What it all means I cannot guess, but 
there is some secret business going on in this house of gloom, which sooner or later we shall get to the bottom of. I do not trouble you with my theories, for you asked me to furnish you only with facts. I have had a long talk with Sir Henry this morning, and we have made a plan of campaign founded upon my observations of last night. I will not speak about it just now, but it should make my next report interesting reading. Chapter 9 The Light Upon the Moor Second Report of Dr. Watson Baskerville Hall, October 15th My dear Holmes, If I was compelled to leave you without much news during the early days of my mission, you must acknowledge that I am making up for lost time, and that events are now crowding, thick, and fast upon us. In my last report, I ended upon my top note with Barrymore at the window, and now I have quite a budget already, which will, unless I am much mistaken, considerably surprise you. Things have taken a turn which I could not have anticipated. In some ways, they have within the last 48 hours become much clearer, and in some ways they have become more complicated. But I will tell you all, and you shall judge for yourself. Before breakfast on the morning following my adventure, I went down the corridor and examined the room in which Barrymore had been on the night before. The western window through which she had stared so intently has, I noticed, one peculiarity above all the other windows in the house. It commands the nearest outlook onto the moor. There is an opening between two trees which enables one, from this point of view, to look right down upon it, while from all the other windows it is only a distant glimpse which can be obtained. It follows, therefore, that Barrymore, since only this window would serve the purpose, must have been looking out for something or some body upon the moor. The night was very dark, so that I can hardly imagine how he could have hoped to see anyone. It had struck me that it was possible that some love intrigue was on foot. That would have accounted for his stealthy movements, and also for the uneasiness of his wife. The man is a striking-looking fellow, very well-equipped to steal the heart of a country girl so that this theory seemed to have something to support it. That opening of the door which I had heard after I had returned to my room might mean that he had gone out to keep some clandestine appointment. So I reasoned with myself in the morning, and I tell you the direction of my suspicions, however much the result may have shown that they were unfounded, But whatever the true explanation of Barrymore's movements might be, 
I felt that the responsibility of keeping them to myself until I could explain them was more than I could bear. I had an interview with the baronet in his study after breakfast, and I told him all that I had seen. He was less surprised than I had expected. I knew that Barrymore walked about nights, and I had a mind to speak to him about it, said he. Two or three times I have heard his steps in the passage, coming and going, just about the hour you name. Perhaps then he pays a visit every night to that particular window, I suggested. Perhaps he does, said the baronet. If so, we should be able to shadow him and see what he is after. I wonder what your friend Holmes would do if he were here. I believe that he would do exactly what you now suggest, said I. He would follow Barrymore and see what he did. Then we shall do it together, said he. But surely he would hear us, I remarked. The man is rather deaf, and in any case we must take our chance of that. We'll sit up in my room tonight and wait until he passes. Sir Henry rubbed his hands with pleasure, and it was evident that he hailed the adventure as a relief to his somewhat quiet life upon the moor. The baronet has been in communication with the architect who prepared the plans for Sir Charles, and with a contractor from London so that we may expect great changes to begin here soon. There have been decorators and furnishers up from Plymouth, and it is evident that our friend has large ideas and means to spare no pains or expense to restore the grandeur of his family. When the house is renovated and refurbished, all that he will need will be a wife to make it complete. Between ourselves, there are pretty clear signs that this will not be wanting if the lady is willing, for I have seldom seen a man more infatuated with a woman than he is with our beautiful neighbor, Miss Stapleton. And yet, the course of true love does not quite run as smoothly as one would, under the circumstances, expect. Today, for example, its surface was broken by a very unexpected ripple, which has caused our friend considerable perplexity and annoyance. After the conversation which I have quoted about Barrymore, Sir Henry put on his hat and prepared to go out. As a matter of course, I did the same. What are you coming, Watson? he asked looking at me in a curious way. That depends on whether you are going on the moor, said I. Sir Henry nodded. Yes, I am. Well, you know what my instructions are, I said. I'm sorry to intrude, but you heard how earnestly Holmes insisted that I should not leave you, and especially that you should not go alone upon the moor. 
Sir Henry put his hand on my shoulder with a pleasant smile. My dear fellow, said he, Holmes, with all his wisdom, did not foresee some things which have happened since I have been on the moor. You understand me. I'm sure that you are the last man in the world who would wish to be a spoilsport, so I must go out alone. It put me in a most awkward position. I was at a loss what to say or what to do, and before I had made up my mind, he picked up his cane and was gone. But when I came to think the matter over, my conscience reproached me bitterly for having gone any pretext allowed him to go out of my sight. I imagined what my feelings would be if I had to return to you and to confess that some misfortune had occurred through my disregard for your instructions. I assure you, my cheeks flushed at the very thought. It might not even now be too late to overtake him. So I set off at once in the direction of Merripit House. I hurried along the road at the top of my speed without seeing anything of Sir Henry until I came to the point where the moor path branches off. There, fearing that perhaps I had come in the wrong direction after all, I mounted a hill from which I could command a view, the same hill which is cut into the dark quarry. Thence I saw him at once. He was on the moor path, about a quarter of a mile off, and a lady was by his side who could only be Miss Stapleton. It was clear that there was already an understanding between them, and they had met by appointment. They were walking slowly along in deep conversation, and I saw her making quick little movements of her hands, as if she were very earnest in what she was saying, while he listened intently and once or twice shook his head in strong dissent. I stood among the rocks watching them, very much puzzled as to what I should do next. To follow them and break into their intimate conversations seemed to be an outrage, and yet my clear duty was never for an instant to let him out of my sight. To act the spy upon a friend was a hateful task. Still, I could see no better course than to observe him from the hill and to clear my conscience by confessing to him afterwards what I had done. It is true that if any sudden danger had threatened him, I was too far away to be of use. And yet, I'm sure that you will agree with me that the position was very difficult and there was nothing more which I could do. Our friend, Sir Henry, and the lady had halted on the path and were standing deeply absorbed in their conversation when I was suddenly aware that I was not the only witness of their interview. A wisp of green floating in the air caught my eye and another glance showed me that it was carried on a stick 
by a man who was moving among the broken ground. It was Stapleton with his butterfly net. He was very much closer to the pair than I was, and he appeared to be moving in their direction. At this instant, Sir Henry suddenly drew Miss Stapleton to his side. His arm was round her, but it seemed to me that she was straining away from him with her face averted. He stooped his head to hers, and she raised one hand as if in protest. Next moment, I saw them spring apart and turn hurriedly round. Stapleton was the cause of the interruption. He was running wildly towards them, his absurd net dangling behind him. He gesticulated and almost danced with excitement in front of the lovers. What the scene meant, I could not imagine, but it seemed to me that Stapleton was abusing Sir Henry, who offered explanations which became more angry as the other refused to accept them. The lady stood by in haughty silence. Finally, Stapleton turned upon his heel and beckoned in a peremptory way to his sister, who, after an irresolute glance at Sir Henry, walked off by the side of her brother. The naturalist's angry gestures showed that the lady was included in his displeasure. The baronet stood for a minute, looking after them, and then he walked slowly back the way he had come, his head hanging, the very picture of dejection. What all this meant I could not imagine. I was deeply ashamed to have witnessed so intimate a scene without my friend's knowledge. I ran down the hill, therefore, and met the baronet at the bottom. His face was flushed with anger, and his brows were wrinkled, like one who is at his wit's ends what to do. Hello, Watson, where have you dropped from? said he. You don't mean to say that you came after me in spite of all. I explained everything to him, how I had found it impossible to remain behind, how I had followed him, and how I had witnessed all that occurred. For an instant, his eyes blazed at me. But my frankness disarmed his anger and he broke at last into a rather rueful laugh. I was on that hill, I said, gesturing to it. Quite in the back row, eh? said he. But her brother was well up to the front. Did you see him come out on us? I nodded. Yes, I did. Did he ever strike you as being crazy, this brother of hers? asked Sir Henry. I can't say that he ever did, said I. I dare say not, he replied. I always thought him sane enough until today. But you can take it from me that either he or I ought to be in a straitjacket. What's the matter with me, anyhow? 
You've lived near me for some weeks, Watson. Tell me straight, now, is there anything that would prevent me from making a good husband to a woman that I loved? I should say not, I told him. He can't object to my worldly position, so it must be myself that he has this down on, said he. What has he against me? I never hurt man or woman in my life that I know of, and yet he would not so much as let me touch the tips of her fingers. Did he say so? I asked. Sir Henry nodded. That and a deal more. I tell you, Watson, I've only known her these few weeks, but from the first I just felt that she was made for me, and she too. She was happy when she was with me, and that I'll swear. There's a light in a woman's eyes that speaks louder than words. But he has never let us together, and it was only today for the first time that I saw a chance of having a few words with her alone. She was glad to meet me, but when she did, it was not love that she would talk about, and she wouldn't have let me talk about it either if she could have stopped it. She kept coming back to it that this was a place of danger, that she would never be happy until I left it. I told her that since I had seen her, I was in no hurry to leave it, and that if she really did want me to go, the only way to work it was for her to arrange to go with me. With that, I offered in as many words to marry her. But before she could answer, down came this brother of hers, running at us with a face on him like a madman. He was just white with rage, and those light eyes of his were blazing with fury. What was I doing with the lady? How dared I offer her attentions which were distasteful to her? Did I think that because I was a baronet I could do what I liked? If he had not been her brother, I should have known better how to answer him. As it was, I told him that my feelings towards his sister were such as I was not ashamed of, and that I hoped that she might honor me by becoming my wife. That seemed to make the matter no better. So then I lost my temper too, and I answered him rather more hotly than I should, perhaps, considering that she was standing by. So it ended by his going off with her, as you saw, and here I am as badly puzzled a man as any in this county. Just tell me what it means, Watson, and I'll owe you more than ever I can hope to pay. I tried one or two exclamations, but indeed I was completely puzzled myself. Our friend's title, his fortune, his age, his character, and his appearance are all in his favor, and I know nothing against him unless it to be this dark fate which runs in his family. That his advances should be rejected so brusquely, without any reference to the lady's own wishes, and that the lady should accept the situation without protest, is very amazing. However, 
our conjectures were set at rest by a visit from Stapleton himself that very afternoon. He had come to offer his apologies for his rudeness of the morning, and after a long, private interview with Sir Henry in his study, the upshot of their conversation was that the breach is quite healed, and that we are to dine at Merripit House next Friday as a sign of it. I don't say now that he isn't a crazy man, said Sir Henry. I can't forget the look in his eyes when he ran at me this morning, but I must allow that no man could make a more handsome apology than he has done. Did he give any explanation of his conduct? I asked. His sister is everything in his life, he says. That is natural enough, and I'm glad that he should understand her value, said he. They have always been together, and according to his account, he has been a very lonely man with only her as his companion, so the thought of losing her was really terrible to him. He had not understood, he said, that I was becoming attached to her, but when he saw with his own eyes that it was really so, and that she might be taken away from him, it gave him such a shock that for a time he was not responsible for what he said or did. He was very sorry for all that had passed, and he recognized how foolish and how selfish it was that he should imagine that he could hold a beautiful woman like his sister to himself for her whole life. If she had to leave him, he had rather it was to a neighbor like myself than to anyone else. But in any case, it was a blow to him, and it would take some time before he could prepare himself to meet it. He would withdraw all opposition on his part if I would promise for three months to let the matter rest and to be content with cultivating the lady's friendship during that time without claiming her love. This I promised, and so the matter rests. So, there is one of our small mysteries cleared up. It is something to have touched bottom anywhere in this bog in which we are floundering. We know now why Stapleton looked with disfavor upon his sister's suitor, even when that suitor was so eligible a one as Sir Henry. And now I pass on to another thread which I have extricated out of the tangled skein. The mystery of the sobs in the night, of the tear-stained face of Mrs. Barrymore, of the secret journey of the butler to the western lattice window. Congratulate me, my dear Holmes, and tell me that I have not disappointed you as an agent that you do not regret the confidence which you showed in me when you sent me down. All these things have, by one night's work, been thoroughly cleared. I have said by one night's work, but in truth it was by two nights' work, for on the first we drew entirely blank. I sat up with Sir Henry in his rooms until nearly three o'clock in the morning, 
but no sound of any sort did we hear except the chiming clock upon the stairs. It was a most melancholy vigil and ended by each of us falling asleep in our chairs. Fortunately, we were not discouraged and we determined to try again. The next night, we lowered the lamp and sat smoking cigarettes without making the least sound. It was incredible how slowly the hours crawled by, and yet we were helped through it by the same sort of patient interest which the hunter must feel as he watches the trap into which he hopes the game may wander. One struck, and two, and we had almost for the second time given up in despair, when in an instant we both sat bolt upright in our chairs, with all our weary senses keenly on the alert once more. We had heard the creak of a step in the passage. Very stealthily we heard it pass along until it died away in the distance. Then the baronet gently opened his door and we set out in pursuit. Already our man had gone round the gallery and the corridor was all in darkness. Softly we stole along until we had come into the other wing. We were just in time to catch a glimpse of the tall, black-bearded figure, his shoulders rounded as he tiptoed down the passage. Then he passed through the same door as before, and the light of the candle framed it in the darkness and shot one single yellow beam across the gloom of the corridor. We shuffled cautiously towards it, trying every plank before we dared to put our whole weight upon it. We had taken the precaution of leaving our boots behind us, but even so, the old boards snapped and creaked beneath our tread. Sometimes it seemed impossible that he should fail to hear our approach. However, the man is fortunately rather deaf, and he was entirely preoccupied in that which he was doing. When at last we reached the door and peeped through, we found him crouching at the window, candle in hand his white, intent face pressed against the pane, exactly as I had seen him two nights before. We had arranged no plan of campaign, but the baronet is a man to whom the most direct way is always the most natural. He walked into the room, and as he did so, Barrymore sprang up from the window with a sharp hiss of his breath and stood, livid and trembling before us. His dark eyes, glaring out of the white mask of his face, were full of horror and astonishment as he gazed from Sir Henry to me. "'What are you doing here, Barrymore?' the baronet asked. Nothing, sir. 
His agitation was so great that he could hardly speak, and the shadows sprang up and down from the shaking of his candle. It was the window, sir. I go round at night to see that they are fastened. On the second floor, Sir Henry asked. Yes, sir, said he. All the windows. Look here, Barrymore, said Sir Henry sternly. We have made up our minds to have the truth out of you, so it will save you trouble to tell it sooner rather than later. Come now, no lies. What were you doing at that window? The fellow looked at us in a helpless way, and he wrung his hands together like one who is in the last extremity of doubt and misery. I was doing no harm, sir, said Barrymore. I was holding a candle to the window. And why were you holding a candle to the window? asked the baronet. Don't ask me, Sir Henry. Don't ask me, said he. I give you my word, sir, that it is not my secret and that I cannot tell it. If it concern no one but myself, I would not try to keep it from you. A sudden idea occurred to me, and I took the candle from the trembling hand of the butler. He must have been holding it as a signal, said I. Let us see if there is any answer. I held it, as he had done, and stared out into the darkness of the night. Vaguely, I could discern the black bank of the trees and the lighter expanse of the moor, for the moon was behind the clouds. And then I gave a cry of exultation, for a tiny pinpoint of yellow light had suddenly transfixed the dark veil and glowed steadily in the center of the black square framed by the window. There it is, I said. No, no, sir, it's nothing, nothing at all, the butler broke in. I assure you, sir. Move your light across the window, Watson, said the baronet. See, the other moves also. Now, you rascal, do you deny that it is a signal? Come, speak up. Who is your confederate out yonder? And what is this conspiracy that is going on? The man's face became openly defiant. It is my business and not yours. I will not tell. Then you leave my employment right away, said Sir Henry. Very good, sir. If I must, I must, Barrymore replied. And you go in disgrace, said the baronet. By thunder, you may well be ashamed of yourself. Your family has lived with mine for over a hundred years under this roof, and here I find you in some dark plot against me. No, sir, not against you. It was a woman's voice, and Mrs. Barrymore, paler and more horror-struck than her husband, was standing at the door. 
her bulky figure in a shawl and skirt might have been comic, were it not for the intensity of feeling upon her face. We have to go, Eliza. This is the end of it. You can pack our things, said the butler. Oh, John, have I brought you to this, said she. It is my doing, Sir Henry, all mine. He has done nothing except for my sake and because I asked him. Speak out then, said the baronet. What does it mean? My unhappy brother is starving on the moor, said she. We cannot let him perish at our very gates. The light is a signal to him that food is ready for him, and his light out yonder is to show the spot to which to bring it. And your brother is? Sir Henry asked. The escaped convict, sir, said she. Selden, the criminal. That's the truth, sir, said Barrymore. I said that it was not my secret and that I could not tell it to you. But now you have heard it, and you will see that if there was a plot, it was not against you. Thank you.